Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Andy, it's hard to believe we've been having weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals has links to purchase the source material behind our adapted film discussions. Your purchases there help support the show at no extra cost. For the entirety of Season 11, we featured films directed by women. The only exceptions were some of our member bonus episodes. We talked about the lure for our horror debuts series, which is a very loose adaptation of The Little Mermaid by Hans Christian Andersen. Definitely miles from the Disney versions. <laughs> for our 10-year anniversary series, we covered We Need to Talk About Kevin, taken from the Lionel Shriver novel. Man, that was brilliant. And horrifying. Yeah. The Journalist series included Merrily We Go to Hell and The Weight of Water, adapted from Anita Shreve's bestseller. We filled some gaps in previous series with member bonus episodes on adaptations like Malcolm X, Mr. Blandings Builds His Dream House, Cactus Flower, Wild at Heart, Life Force, and The Blues Brothers. Our John Hurd series looked at a trio of adaptations, Chilly Scenes of Winter from the novel by Ann Beatty, Awakenings based on Oliver Sacks' nonfiction book, and Rambling Rose adapted from the Calder Willingham novel. Two films in our coming-of-age debut series were adapted from books, The Virgin Suicides from Jeffrey Eugenides and The Diary of a Teenage Girl, Phoebe Gluckner's graphic novel. We had Queen of Cotway for our sports series based on Tim Crothers' nonfiction book. And Clueless kicked off our 90s comedy series, loosely adapted from Jane Austen's Emma. It totally took place in the 90s, though. <laughs> Find all of these books and more adaptations on our Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read from the movies we've covered. Visit thenextreel.com slash originals today.
I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. We need to talk about Kevin is over. It's the most honest thing you ever did. Every day, it's a getting closer, going faster than a roller coaster. Love like yours will take a mile. You just have to rock him a little bit. Did you say mommy? No. Shouldn't he be talking by now? I wouldn't worry about it. No. He's just a boy. Just a sweet little boy. Just because you're used to something doesn't mean you like it. You're used to me. Good shot, Kevin. You're a natural. First he cries too much, then he's too quiet. And you see it as some kind of personal vendetta? You think I'm exaggerating? Listen, buddy, it's easy to misunderstand when you hear it out of context. Why would I not know the context? Franklin, pick up the phone! It's just a sweet little, sweet little... Pick up the phone! Just a sweet little boy. That's what boys do. Uh, Andy? Pete! This movie was dark. Dark. <laughs> this is a dark movie. <laughs> and when you say dark, you don't mean the lighting was low. Nope. It nope. was dim. You need to make sure all your lights are off when you watch it. No, this is what I would call suburban sunny. Like, this is just, everything was just kind of hard, like lit. It was lit. It was morning lit, and then there were flashing police car lights. And my goodness. Ezra Miller is not on my list of best friends who've never met me as he was uh, in this movie. Wow. Well, we obviously came into watching him in the wrong order. We sure did. Going from There's we no, need to talk no about Kevin to The Flash, <laughs> that's much easier to, to take that move. 100%. You know, I've gone backward with his career because I started with The Flash and then I went to Perks of Being a Wallflower. And now mm-hmm. this, I'm like, oh, he's I'm getting... Less and less comfy with this person. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, we did it wrong. We did it wrong. Uh, Absolutely. So, so uh, this is, we're still uh, in the middle of our 10th anniversary series, movies that are having their birthdays, just like the next reel is having its birthday. And so we're, we're cruising toward uh, into the backside of this series, right? How many do we have left? A couple. We're, we're over the hump of the series. Yeah. We're in the back half of it now. And uh, yeah, this... Um, this one is coming out, uh, for members, this will be the first episode that has come out after our actual birthday. Outstanding. Tomboy would have come out on our actual birthday for members. It's a real celebration. Yeah. Okay. So we need to talk about Kevin, Lynn Ramsey, 2011. Favorite time, favorite time of the show. What did Pete think about this movie? Well, you thought it was dark. (laughs) 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 Can I, can I say there? Yes. And and Ezra Miller? Not a fan of his character in this film. <laughs> How am I doing so far? You're doing um, okay. I, I think that you enjoyed this film. I think you, I mean, in context of what it is, I think that it was something that you found uh, strong and um, got its message across, particularly because of the way that Tilda Swinton performed her character. Okay. And I also think that you thought 
just about exactly the same thing, that it was it probably impacted you uh, and that you really are celebrating this film as the film, like the art of film. Len Ramsey is a a dynamic filmmaker, and I think you really latched on to that uh, in spite of its challenging subject matter. Oh, my. Okay. Oh, I'm so excited. Oh, dear. Where are we going to go? All right. Well, this movie, uh, probably you could easily guess. This is rated R for disturbing violence and behavior, some sexuality, and language. Want to watch this movie and help us out? Well, if you see an Apple or Amazon link to this movie in our show notes, just click on it. It'll take you right to their site, and you can rent or buy the movie. When you do this, we get a little tiny piece in return. We figured out what our series is uh, for merch for this particular series, and we think we think it's going to be good. It's all about the animals. So get ready. Our 10th anniversary series, it's all about the animals. We hope so. We're halfway through. We... We have to see, you know, how it works with the rest of the movies. <laughs> we got a couple more movies. We pray to God there are actually animals in the rest of the movies. Uh, you can check out all the merch at truestory.fm slash TNR merch. Support the show. You can get shirts, stickers, mugs, masks, pillows, pillows, pillows. Anybody sleepy? And uh, you can get everything else that is coming up as well. We have started featuring audio reviews from you, our dear listeners. Just send your 30-second audio file to reviews at truestory.fm once you watch the film, and we just might showcase your voice right here on the show. You gotta get them in quick, though. We record about two weeks ahead of schedule uh, by the time this releases, so just watch the movie, send it in to us again. It's reviews at truestory.fm. And, you know, I'll bet you're saying, but Andy, how will I ever know what movies you're talking about. If I need to get my review in quickly, how do I... I can't read your mind. I can't see the future. I don't know how to do this thing you're asking me to do. Well, that's okay. If you visit our Letterboxd HQ page, that's that's where you can find it all. We have an entire list there that shows all the movies we're talking about in, our, in any given season. And uh, so you can peek ahead. You can see, hey, what are Pete and Andy talking about in two weeks? And send us your review there. And if you love Letterboxd, which we're sure you will... All you need to do is use the discount code NEXTREAL when you decide to upgrade your account from the free account to the pro or patron account. That code NEXTREAL will get you 20% off that upgrade. You have no ads. You'll support the show. You'll support the site. And uh, frankly, you'll be supporting the show, too. That's right. We get just a little taste, just a little taste right off the top of that. So uh, the code NEXTREAL. We also put a, a redirect link from our website, thenextreel.com slash letterboxed, and that will take you straight to the checkout page with the discount already applied. It's just fantastic. Uh, and it works for renewals as well. We need your support. We don't sell your information. We just want your support by becoming a member to help us out. Members get early access to every episode, and you also get all sorts of bonus episodes. I mean, it's crazy how many bonus episodes we're doing this season. Crazy, crazy, crazy. You would 
It's we're like a mattress sale right here. There's so it's crazy <laughs> bonus episodes. Uh, we've got a, a member bonus that fills a gap from one of our past series. We've got flick chart re-ranking episodes in which we make sound effects with our mouths. Uh, and Andy makes me uh, have a stroke. And it is and we have retake episodes where we cover the uh, the the series that we have just passed as a way to kind of integrate what we've learned by watching all these movies uh, one after another. So. That is, uh, you know, check out. Check out the membership. Become a member. Support the stuff we do and get access to all kinds of member episodes in your very own bespoke members-only podcast feed. Just head to truestory.fm slash TNR membership. You can learn more about all of our different membership tiers. The most it'll cost is $5 a month or $55 a year. To the man cave! On this couch, wearing clothes made from recycled plastic. And I haven't showered since Thursday. Mandy Fabian. And on this couch, lover of all things real housewives and fart jokes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was a good one. Oh, God. Mandy Kaplan. Each week, these best friends and polar opposites hunt down a movie, TV show, or trend. Whether it's Brene Brown or Little House on the Prairie. Or something good. Okay, that's unnecessary. And drag it back to the cave to duke it out. I'm just saying the Ingles never break into song and it needs Not it. everything has everything to be. Everything needs music. You think everything Schindler's List should be a musical? Everything would be better Ugh, if everyone would worst. just sing. It's the worst. Dance. I should sing You're that. the worst. Uh, ladies, can we get back to the... Sorry, uh... Tune into the Man Cave wherever you get your podcasts to see if the friendship survives. You're so dramatic. It's a comedy podcast. So's your face. <gasps> That's a good one. Andy. Oh my mm. goodness. I love the we we have in our notes here. What are what are the big questions about this movie? And your first note is parental responsibility with children who are sociopaths. <laughs> 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 oh, okay. Yes. Look, look, I uh, let's start with with this. At what point do we realize that Kevin is problematic? That's a difficult question, having seen the trailer beforehand, because the trailer pretty much alludes to what's going on, and so, and I mean, even to a certain extent, the title does. You know, so I, I, I guess it was hard for me to ever feel like. Anything that was going to happen was going to be a surprise. Honestly, I, I hadn't watched the trailer before I watched this. And on reflection, after watching Tomboy and Pariah, it is a, about as easy for me to imagine the sociopath storyline as it is that Kevin is a, a young boy struggling with his sexual identity. Right. Like that could have been the surprise easily um, with, you know, these parents dealing with with what they're child is going through. And so, you know, I I thought it was really interesting the way Lynn Ramsey uses the the sort of storyline, the narrative structure and the flashbacks like I that that I couldn't quite figure out what she was saying when, you know, she started alluding to the baby screaming Kevin as a baby, like screaming and screaming and only stop not, not screaming when dad was around and that their relationship started tearing apart very, very early. And is the movie trying to make a case that we should have known Kevin was a bad seed, you know, as a as an infant or a toddler <laughs> or something, right? Like, at what point should Kevin have been remanded to the state? 
Well, yeah. I mean, it's interesting because it certainly sets it up in a way where there's never going to be uh, kind of a good relationship between Kevin and Eva, his mom. True. And, you know, that's, that's interesting. And it's it certainly is something that, um, I don't know, to a certain extent, it does make you wonder in context of the particular story, like how much of this are we getting just completely from Eva's perspective as far as her relationship with her son? Because I believe, I mean, the book that this is based on is written first person as if she's writing letters to her husband. And so it's all kind of told in uh, very much a first person style. I, I don't know how much of it is, you know, the unreliable narrator type of thing, but I, I, I've heard the author speaking to that point. So, uh, you know, we're very specifically seeing all of the bad moments with Kevin as a baby and mom. Are we meant to believe that it's always that way? Are there ever good times? Like, I was uh, honestly <laughs> completely surprised when um, mom and uh, the the little girl are taking a walk and they and she's like, oh, look, there's Kevin. And they look across the way and Kevin's standing there looking at a big poster in a bookstore of mom ha- who has written a book, one of her travel books. And I was like, oh, I it, the way the film has been structured, I came to just think that she was a stay at home mom and John C. Riley was never around because yeah. he was always working and he had some fancy job that made tons of money because they lived in this ridiculous house he was like a photographer so it it, i i I don't know i I never really had a sense as to what he was did they say that he was a photographer yeah well at some point the the when he comes home from work the kid the kid says um and i can't remember if it was celia cecilia or kevin but at at some point he comes in and he's checking the mail and she says "Uh, oh hi daddy did you did you take lots of great pictures today and it made me think that he was some sort of either a journalist or a photographer or something and okay so i i don't know but well but i was just it's interesting just how it's it's structured where it really focuses on the relationship between mom and son very heavily throughout the film to a point where i didn't even know she worked and like, were there ever good times or are we only focusing on just these bad times? Because the story is largely told from her perspective after the fact, as she's looking back and having memories of all of the things that in her mind led him to this path. And that's what I found so interesting about the way that the film was structured is because it is really designed as a memory piece of her trying to figure out where did I go wrong? Was it me? Was it him? As she's kind of, you know, trying to trying to figure all this out. I'm really glad you brought that up. And I I don't want to just let it wash by because I, I think it's important that we note just how hard it is to write a story that if that is effective, and also isolates us from so much of the other characters of the characters backstories right because we we often rely on those backstories to tell us things about how the characters are going to evolve in the future and this movie operates in complete isolation of that near complete isolation of that right it is a surprise as you said when we discover that she has a career it is a surprise when we discover that he you know that the dad has has uh, you know life outside the house that he's actually doing something and contributing in some way beyond 
beyond just not being there. Um, like it, all of those little little nuggets are such a surprise, and you almost like the movie exists almost in a vacuum from them, which I think it ends up being a much more impactful film as a result of it. But that's a hard choice to make, uh, eliminating so much of the the character material, the character fabric that we normally count on to to lead us in new directions. And I, I think it's I'm I, as we record this, I'm in the middle of NaNoWriMo and I I'm it, it's resonant to me as I am writing so many filler words of backstory <laughs> just to try to make work count <laughs> how hard it is to excise all of that stuff and and actually create, you know, uh, a movie that ends up being impactful by the end. It really does. And it's I mean, it's I I was endlessly impressed and we haven't really talked about what we thought but i mean i was endlessly impressed by the way that ramsey crafted this story uh you know she wrote the script with uh, rory stewart kinnear i believe her partner i don't know if that's partner in life or writing partner i'm not, not exactly sure but they wrote this together and the way the script moves and so fluidly and effortless effortlessly moves across time and oftentimes just in very brief single shots as we kind of just jump to a moment that she's remembering as she's driving or things like that it was uh, just like um just a thrill to kind of watch this journey as we traveled with eva through her very kind of frustrating life as she's trying to get started all over again and just dealing with the people who hate her, everybody hates her because she is the mom of the kid who massacred everyone in the school. You almost should watch this as a prequel to Mass, right? Like that that upcoming movie, I think it's out now, um, Mass, about the two families sitting across from each other talking about the, the parents of a child who was killed oh, in a school right. shooting, sitting yeah. across from the parents of, of the child who did the shooting. Like th- this is this is sort of a spiritual prequel to a movie like that. Yeah, it's interesting. And you look at movies like Elephant and things that have tackled yeah. this subject. It's, I mean, it's a difficult, difficult subject to, to tackle, period. Uh, you know, just these days, unfortunately, it's become way too common and to a frustrating point that I don't even want to get into the politics with it because it's just endlessly frustrating for me um, that that we're in a place where this happens as often as it does. But the point is, we're focused on the mom. She's our character. And she's going through the process of just trying to figure out, like, where did I go wrong? Was it me? Like, the baby always seemed unhappy around me. Again, we're only seeing the moments that she's remembering of the baby being unhappy. Surely there were also happy times, but she's not focusing on those because she's after the fact that he's killed all these people reflecting on these things and she's thinking about those moments the baby was always crying he always stopped crying when dad picked him up but he always cried when i was with him and the things like when uh he's just just uh, a turd with her about sitting on the toilet and using the toilet and the way that that whole thing evolves. oh my goodness and sinister sinister use of poop in a film not just the poop, but also just like the way that he became manipulative of her and started realizing how he could manipulate and lie to get what he wanted because she had pushed him and he had this uh, scar in his arm and had broken his arm. And um, and the way that he turned that into a tool. And at one point, you know, 
as she's saying, oh, I need to stop at the store. And he just starts kind of rubbing that scar. And she's just like, okay, I guess we'll go home because he didn't want to go to the store. Like, there are all these different things that she's just kind of going back through time that just stood out as these things that like, was that a moment that like he turned or was he already bad? I can, I, I find it fascinating uh, as a, kind of an exploration of her journey through her past of raising her child. Did I cause this? Because I mean, as a parent, and this is something that surely we both deal with because we're both parents, like what are my actions right now leading to my child in the future becoming and like, how am I shaping them? And it's just yeah. a constant thing in your head. It's, it's powerful. Well, it's interesting that, uh, you know, it makes me think as I, as I think back across the film, how many of those memories and how much of the unri unreliable narrator trope that we're talking about here deal with her remembering instances where she was responsible where she was contributing to their bad relationship when he was a young child, right? I, I think there was the one, for sure, where, um, she, you know, during the, the poop sequence, uh, where she throws him, right, um, and breaks his arm, and much more seriously than I would have guessed from what he looked like when, <laughs> when he was holding his arm up. Uh, he comes <laughs> back, and he's practically in a full torso cast. So there was that. But everything else seemed to be her reflection of how bad he was and how exhausted she was, but how her her parenting was being inflicted back on her. And I wonder from time to time just how often the book might have dealt with more instances where she was like she exacerbated the situation beyond what he was contributing to it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, where's her responsibility in all of this? Well, I, and there was a conversation when the two of them go out uh, at Putt-Putt. This is, this is where she wants to take him out for an evening. Putt-Putt yeah. and Let's dinner. Let's go Putt-Putt and dinner. After and he eats a whole chicken in his face. <laughs> He's the worst. Uh, but what I found so interesting, and this was a moment where we have a line from her as she's looking at some people and she's fat shaming them. You know, about how, you know, there's a reason that they're fat. They they are constantly eating and they're eating the wrong foods uh, and she's disgusted by them. And he says, you know, you can be a little harsh sometimes. And she said, you're one to talk. And he said, I know. I, I wonder am. where I got I it. I wonder where I got it. And that was one of those things where, you know, I was like, that's the sort of thing that she's probably doing with like not even conscious of she of her doing it. And he's constantly picking up on those things. That happened to be a moment where he brought it up. But that probably happened a lot more in their lifetime that she's just not thinking about because it just it's second nature to her and he's not commenting on it. Yes. And how much of that do you think was more a contributor to breaking up their marriage? Right. That the as as parents, like not just her relationship with Kevin and how sort of sinister he was, but that she was just not great at, at being in relationships with people and their relationship with kevin made all of that worse and more apparent so i i feel like the the parental responsibility is probably high but here we are experiencing once again that issue where the movie takes place in such iso isolation in her background right it, or in her memories that we don't get to actually see that stuff we don't get to see as much of that stuff about their 
that, you know, how she contributed to their marriage falling apart. The, the way that it's set up, it's very interesting because, uh, like, I, I, I was constantly wondering, like, why are they, why are the parents not having conversations about this? And I know a lot of parents just don't, like, they just don't know how to have conversations about things. And it's very frustrating when one parent is like, he's doing these things, you're not seeing it, and the other parent never sees it. And it's just like, I don't see it. He's just, you know, doing the stuff that a boy does. And, and like the things like where Kevin, you know, my sense is maliciously put paint in a water gun and sprayed it all over her room because he was, you know, just malicious. And then she's upset with him, crushes his water gun. (laughs) Makes it worse. (laughs) Right. And then when, right, because her feet are now covered in paint, she's got ruined the rug. But now when dad, when dad comes in, he's just like, he just wanted to contribute and he wanted to make it something special. And it's like, God, that is just like, I mean, that's, that's so interesting and manipulative. And yes, I suppose you could see it from dad's perspective that he is just trying to help and he's trying to do something himself to make it special for you. And I found that so interesting. And I, I I don't think that the film is set up in a way where we're ever not thinking Kevin is a sociopath, you know, like I kind of had a, I mean, the way he looks at her all the time, it's like, he's an evil child. This fits right in with our, our naughty children series. He's an evil child. And, and the casting of the, of the children just in general, right? I, I think the um the six to eight year old Kevin was uh Jasper Newell, who was exceptional, exceptional in this role. And I guess it was Rock Doer who played Kevin as a toddler. Um and and just I I mean the trio of Ezra Miller and Jasper uh, Newell and, and Rock Doer were great. Sinister the entire time. Uh even the just born infant Kevin was obviously a bad seed. We, you could see that coming. So, <laughs> just uh, I think too great. much. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's talk about John uh, C. Riley. Uh, we need to talk uh, about John. We need to talk about John. So, you know, speaking of parental relationships, and you, as you have rightly said, he's kind of a backgrounder. But what relationship do we have? Uh, it, what role does he have in the relationship between mom and son falling apart? The way that, again, it, it all goes to the, how the film is constructed. Like, he's largely absent. He's not around during any of the time where there's care that's needed, except uh, and then he comes in just to be there for fun. Like he's the fun dad. He's the one who, uh, you know, they're they're excited about going out and doing the archery and stuff like that. And and it's all about just kind of like, gosh, dad, you're swell, you know, and, and just like that whole relationship. And it's, it's very interesting because he just never gets to see that stuff. And of course, as we watch the film, Kevin learns how to play that up with dad. And so he gets whatever he wants with dad. And and mom becomes the one who's just, you know, always having to deal with this stuff. And so I, I really enjoyed seeing John C. Riley in this role. It's, it's like a really kind of, uh, just kind of fun role for him to play, where he really kind of felt like this guy who just, he's a loving dad. And he certainly means the best but it's just like i don't think either of these parents really had a good handle and never were communicating enough with each other about how to handle all the all of these different things that were potentially coming up well and i think that's exactly it like his his way of dealing with all of this was to further distance himself right it just felt like he he moved further into the background and you can sort of see it uh you know there is a sequence where kevin 
he's he's pretty persnickety, right? And at one point he gets sick and mom cleans up his vomit and then she's reading the story of Robin Hood to him in bed one night and dad walks in and Kevin is a jerk, right? And turns around and says, dad, you know, get out of here. I'm, I don't feel good. I'm tired. And you see Riley do effectively the Homer Simpson backing into a bush uh, gift. <laughs> right. uh, and he he backs out of the he backs out of the room and like I, I feel like that sequence to me is really representative of John C. Riley as dad and it's kind of tropey right that that dad is is absent and the story is really about mom and child and I, I even wonder if there's a if there's a segment on TVTropes.com right to to talk about <laughs> dads who uh, absent dads in film. And and it, it's a little bit upsetting because I, you know, as as I think, you know, as an active dad in my own kid's life, I I kept wanting him to stand up. I wanted him to be, you know, uh, uh, an active parent. I wanted him to be aware and not just not just taking on the good stuff, because that's the other trope, right? That that overburdened moms are frustrated because dad is only gets the kid uh, for the good times and going go-karting and buying cotton candy when mom has to be the disciplinarian and the educator and do everything else. And and I I think that is, that's a thing that I missed, right? This was a, I know this was very much, you know, her story, but it was hard to watch dad be as absent as he was. That that frustrated me, um, maybe more than it should have. But I mean, did it frustrate you in context of like just the because as a part of the story, like you're frustrated because yeah, or, but you're not frustrated at the film for putting it that no, way. Because, no, 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 because that's I mean that that's an important element of the story, and it's a it, having him absent is an important piece to to why uh, their relationship falls apart because he was a non-contributing kind of parent at in yeah. that stuff and a non-believer and that is part of the story i just found myself reacting emotionally to that element you know in an outsized fashion to to the to the rest of the movie i and, and plus i love john c Riley. like i think he's he's just great at these more serious roles and um uh, so i have a terrific time watching him on screen and i i wanted to see more of a more of a, a parental perspective from him. And I guess, you know, all of that really leads to the question is like, you know, where is the responsibility with these parents with yeah. what Kevin became? Because, I mean, I think that there's obviously a lot of responsibility that parents have in shaping their kids. But I also know that there are people who are by nature high conflict people who have certain elements just in their kind of intrinsic nature that they just can't necessarily shut off. It's just part of who they are. And that includes people who have sociopathic tendencies. And I don't know if these parents were great parents, if they could have still raised Kevin to a place where he didn't end up doing this. That's a huge question in this movie, right? That is a, a huge question. Um, because, you know, especially because they make this such a statement of uh, nature, not nurture, right? There is, is there anything this couple could have done? I just don't, I don't think so. I don't think so. Yeah. But I mean, is it, that what it, you walked away with? Doesn't it? Is that sort of your perspective, too? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But what I found so fascinating is the way that it puts Eva into this mindset after the fact of like 
trying to figure out, was it nurture? Was it me? Because, I mean, she she blames herself. She says when the Mormons come to her door, she's, she knows where she's going. I'm going straight to hell. Eternal damnation for me right here. Like, she's already convinced that she is the reason that he ended up where he is, that that from the beginning, she didn't know how to raise him. She was yelling at him. She was saying, I wish that you weren't here and that I could be back in, you know, in Spain with the tomato festival thing, La Tomate. Oh, we should, should we talk about La Tomatina? That was an interesting way to open the open the movie. It, yeah, it's 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 interesting, and it sets up a, a sense of who she is. But it's, it's like, yeah, but she's she is blaming herself, and she's constantly thinking of the better life, the what she could have had, what she had before all of this. And La yes. Tomatina, I think, I mean, it was an interesting way to start the film because it's like this huge uh, celebration in uh, in Buñol, a Valencian town um, in Spain, where uh, yeah, everybody throws tomatoes. It's a huge tomato fight. There's giant vats of squished tomatoes that people swim in. I mean, it's it's shockingly disgusting to <laughs> look at what people do with this thing. It's just, it's just. I mean, really, it's just, it's tomato juice everywhere. I can't imagine the cleanup job after the fact. But there are also, like, I mean, it's interesting because we see her as this, I mean, she's a travel writer, as we learn later, and here she is almost having, like, this baptism in this giant pool of tomatoes of red and red becomes a very prominent color throughout the film because we've got the red of this baptism that she has. We've got the red paint that gets splattered on her house and her car. And And, and we should say almost immediately, right? That sequence is almost cut over itself just because of the use of flashbacks. So the splashing red paint is, uh, you know, it is a really effective transition from her past life to her current life that she's, it is an inescapable, the blood is inescapable for her. Well, the, the, yeah, the, the redness, the blood. Yeah, because as I mean, right. even the when metaphorical she's in the store, blood, right? the metaphorical blood, right, because even later when she's in the grocery store, and this is it was a great scene when she's she knows somebody's in the store who um, is somebody who judges her and doesn't like her. And so she purposefully hides in a different aisle and yes. waits for them to leave. And then she comes back. And but while she's waiting in that aisle, it's a soup aisle and all of the cans behind her beautifully shot. <laughs> It's all tomato soup, like cans of red tomato soup and the whole wall of red behind her. So she's constantly surrounded by and drowning in red. And and how symbolic is that of kind of the the uh, bathing in blood that you end up having at the end, this giant bloodbath that her son has at the high school when he uh, massacres everybody and kills you know her husband and her daughter it's so prominent and it's so important that that this color becomes so powerful in the film and again because of the way ramsey's intercutting between past and present constantly just so much of this overflow it becomes this kind of amalgam of all of her memories as everything kind of blends together and she's constantly uh drowning in it i guess you could say drowning in it right which which takes her back to takes us all the way back to that opening sequence where she is it it is an exalted experience right it it is a it looks the way Tilda Swinton is playing it it's a it's a religious experience for her right it really i mean we've used the word baptism already and that just feels like she is at her like that is the aspirational place in her identity that is the peak of her life and everything else as soon as kevin is introduced is downhill from there and, uh, you know, that's when the challenges of 
adulting hit her, right? She has to figure out how to move to a new house. They take on this whole new life and identity in this other place. And, and it's all worse than her best experience, which was, which was being touched and bathed in tomato goo and, and having like such a, a close, you know, physical relationship with so many people at the same time. It, it was the high point. It starts at the high point and it just goes downhill from there. And I think there's also a parallel, too, be, be, that she starts with this massive group of people. And the the final like her, her final exercise with her son is now she's lost everybody because of her son. And her final exercise is the one on one hug with her son as she walks away. Um, so it's like the whole movie is an exercise of winnowing the people in her life away from her. Yeah, right, right. What also is really interesting is if you think back to the actual start of the film, the first thing we hear are sprinklers. And then we come in on their bedroom at night and the wind blowing through the open uh, sliding doors to their balcony and just kind of that kind of that soft white of them. And the camera slowly moves in on them. And then all of a sudden they blow out to white. And that's when we cut to her at the Tomatina Festival kind of in celebration and everything. Yeah. And if you think about like what is actually happening when we find out that moment, when later we see that that moment when she comes back home after having found out that Kevin has massacred all these kids at the school and she comes back home and she's looking for her husband and her daughter and she's calling out to them and she goes up to the bedroom and she hears the sprinklers turn on and and something clicks in her head and and she is that POV at the very beginning. She's walking very slowly to the blind or to the, the curtains. And then she turns the light on and that's when they blow to white. She goes through them and that's when she sees the two dead bodies in the yard. Yeah. And so if you think about that, like this is where kind of those flashbacks start. Like, you know, well, one, the baptism in blood, all the red with these two dead bodies and everything. But also thinking back to the good times, thinking back to like, where like when we when she and her husband met and all of that it's just it's so incredibly structured this film like this film from shot to shot from past to present the way that she constructs everything in this ramsey knew exactly like how to cut what she was going to cut from because there are incredible matching shots through time where we see tilda in one position and then we cut to her again in the same position but now we're in the in the past it's just immaculately constructed. She's so so sharp as a filmmaker. I, it was really stunning to watch uh, just all of this stuff unfold. Yeah, I, I think so too. And and that is such a great point that the entire movie is you know is captured in uh, the traumatic the the life flashing before your eyes moments immediately preceding traumatic experience expectation like she knows something's going to happen when she looks outside and then we get her life flashing before her eyes and all the worst parts of it most of the worst parts of it uh and that is a that's a great note it just uh, it's it's clever filmmaking like and she does it a lot sometimes with with visuals sometimes with sound like there's a point where it's in the past when her daughter is playing with her Clifford the Red Dog uh, stuffed animal on the counter, and and Kevin comes in and sets his bag down, and there's a brief exchange between them. And then the way the daughter, like, takes her dog and, like, thumps him down on the countertop, you get this noise that is not the noise that it should make. You're like, well, that was a strange thunk that the dog made. But then you cut to 
the ground and you see a basketball hit the ground and you're like, oh, it was a basketball sound hitting the ground. And now we've cut to this moment of the basketball hitting the ground. And now we're back in the present because this is a kid across the street who is watching her as she walks out of her house and has to deal with all the paint on her car so she can drive and look for a job. It's like all of that intercutting was so sharp and and just brilliantly constructed. It's just it's just incredibly clever. It, it really is. It really is. I I'm consider me a fan of Lynn Ramsey. I think this is a this is an exceptional movie and uh, just adding to a really interesting catalog of movies. Have you seen much else of hers? Yeah, well, like she's only directed four films: Ratcatcher, Morven Color, this, and You Were Never Really Here. I found Ratcatcher uh, when we started doing this, and I haven't I haven't posted a review of it, but it's another really interesting story, and it's an interesting story set in the most fascinating, like time and place, right? Of of this sort of Scotland in the early seventies as they're rehousing. Have you seen it? I haven't. No. As as a rehousing people and and it's it's just about this this 12-year-old boy as as he is catching rats in the trash and uh it is and their family and I I you should see it. It it is a lovely uh exploration and you were never really here which we had this conversation last night uh you know in the in the pre-show chat uh, um for the live stream about the fact that you never really here is actually, you know, the joker. <laughs> But better, uh, and, uh, and and that it was um, that's another fascinating uh, sort of and, and much more sort of compelling narrative film, and I, I think has a lot to lean on from. We need to talk about Kevin. Yeah, I need to see. Uh, I want to see all of her stuff now. I was just I, I was so blown away by the way she put this together. It was uh, just really just a stunning piece of work, and so. Um, yeah, I, I it was very exciting. Very exciting to to see. Truly, did we talk enough about Tilda Swinton? Can I just once again <laughs> probably say not? Yeah, how flipping good she was in this film. Yeah. Like, I, just like unbelievable the way she carried everything from those little moments of kind of being you know, starting to have fun, like when she's at the Christmas party at the office, and and you know, it's it's kind of she's like still behind her wall, but trying to have fun. And then that one guy asks her to dance. And then he leans in and whispers just some awful, awful stuff. And you realize, oh, he really does hate her too, like everyone else. Like he's judging her just as everyone is. And it's like, wow, this is just, she's just never going to get away from it all. And I just kept saying, why do you live here? Move, find a new place. But obviously she wanted to be close to the prison where Kevin was so she could still have those moments with him. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. She's, she is, she was exceptional in this movie. And, uh, I, I think it, it, she reminds me that around every corner, this movie could have come off the rails, right? Because of one, the narrative structure could, could be considered confusing. Two, the mom could have become, you know, sappy or, uh, you know, and uh, portrayed as clumsily. Like it, it, this is a hard movie about an incredibly difficult act. And, and, you know, we should talk about the act. Um, but, uh, you know, largely, because of her incredible competence as a performer, she's able to keep everything sort of in the reins. And I think the same thing about Ezra Miller. And I'm, I'm, I don't know what the latest news is on Ez, the Ezra Miller controversy. Is there one? Yeah. Well, a year ago, uh, a video surfaced of Ezra Miller apparently choking a woman outside a bar in Reykjavik. 
Oh, and dear. that was that was on on the news. And then like she she comes up to him. He grabs her by the throat and throws her on the ground. And whoever was f- filming starts saying, whoa, stop. And then the footage ends. And so you don't really know what happens. You don't know what it was about. He apparently goes to Reykjavik all the time. So he's a regular there. And uh, and this whole thing, he never he didn't address it for the longest time. And I don't know if he's addressed it since, but it's been a year. There was talk that he might lose the the flag gig like people were really upset about this and so it's a little bit of a shadow that hangs over an exceptional set of performances in in this movie and uh you know obviously this happened after you know the movie and he attained a little bit more fame uh, but it, it it's hard to it's hard to hear that stuff i i know he's just been very kind of uh an advocate of the me too movement uh you know apparently he had an issue where some people were coming on to him and giving him wine when he was underage. So like, I knew that he had his own stories. I didn't know. I didn't know that. I didn't know that there had been another thing. So that's frustrating. And uh, yeah, well, I guess we'll see. But um, as it is, I mean, he is a great performer. I certainly uh, would love to think that, you know, it's that there's not anything to that and that he's able to kind of continue his career. Cause I think that he's very strong in what he does. Right, right. And, and I, you know, from the reports from the people in, in Iceland, they said it was just a really pushy crowd of fans. And, you know, he lost his temper when they pushed up on him. And so it sounds like it was a, um, you know, it, it's hard being famous moment. And, and I mean that not sarcastically, um, but I certainly wouldn't defend, you know, that sort of activity in any way. Like I get being famous is hard, and also you're famous. Like there's let's let's watch check that privilege at the choking. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Awful. So anyhow, he's great in this movie. So yeah. Well, and we we're getting to that point that the the end, and I mean, uh, I mean, it's a difficult thing to depict as any filmmaker or storyteller, like having to figure out how are you going to handle that? Because nobody wants to see that. It just, it's an awful situation. And, and that was one of the things that made Elephant just, I mean, stomach turning movie for me to watch because of the way that Linkletter, uh, or not Link, was it Linkletter who did Elephant? No, it wasn't Linkletter. It was um, Gus Van Sant. Um, Van Sant yeah. yeah, it was a, a difficult, difficult thing to kind of deal with. This film it depicts it in a way where we really are only with Kevin. We see him locking the doors. We see him pulling his arrows out and shooting them one after another. Um, but we're only ever with him. We're, and then we see that kind of like horrifying shot where he's up on the stage and he's like, you know, raising his arms in triumph and, and stuff. And it's like, wow, he is, he's lost. Um, and then we only see really the aftermath as the police finally get in. He comes out, gets arrested, and then we see people getting wheeled out. And um, yeah, so it's interesting. And actually, another moment that I found really powerful was the one kid in the wheelchair who does go and greet Eva and isn't blaming her. And he wants to see how she's doing. And that, for me, was one of the most powerful things in the film. Like, this kid understands it wasn't her who did it and wants to make sure she's okay. And like, that is the sort of thing that Eva really needs, you know, those, those people, because there's that other mom who like, well, and doesn't know how to, it doesn't know how to receive it. Yeah. Right? Well, yeah. I mean, cause you're, cause you're constantly afraid because so many people put on that facade of, of acceptance only to then, uh, you know, spit in your face, like the guy yeah, right. at the office, you know? Right. 
Um, but like the mom, the other mom who punches her, the other one who breaks her eggs, like, I mean, uh, just it's, it's going to be a constant life of dealing with all of this. And it's, it's a, it's a challenge and yeah, but I mean, it's, it's hard watching those sorts of scenes play out really difficult. Yeah, yeah it really is. There's, there's two last things I want to talk about. Sure. One is mom at the end, we see that Eva, uh, has been painting one of the rooms in her house where she's living now blue, the same blue that that uh, Kevin's room was when he was a kid. And then at the end, we see she's ironing his old clothes. She's She is putting them in a drawer. She's basically redone the room to look like his childhood room. What were your thoughts on that? Well, I, you know, would you like childhood room or just his room? Like it, I, to me, it, it feels like she was well, like yeah, I that's guess an it, explanation yeah. of grief, right? An exploration of grief. Like all she knows is uh, how to take the best part of her her memory of him and capture it in like a freeze frame. And she at this point, you know, she knows that things aren't going well things aren't going back to to normal so let's just capture when it was when we were at our best when things were perfect and just stop and just stop time in that room does that make sense yeah like that's that's where i where i was like it felt very natural to me that she would try to try to position that as as the the perfect time that she'll she knows she'll never get back but in this one space she can use material goods possessions and and this safe space of this bedroom to to you know protect that memory for her that's that's kind of what i took away from it is that um she was trying to find a way to preserve a part of that past that that you know was just kind of a safe space the safe thing to remember because so much of it is pain so much of it is you know anger and frustration and all the stuff we've seen throughout the film but this just having that space that organized room it just gave her a sense that that he's there and he's not he hasn't done what he did yeah right oh tough one and the last thing i wanted to bring up is and you kind of already brought it up with that last hug but before that she's allowed to see him on a different day than normal and it's because it's the second anniversary of the massacre yes so she comes and visits him and she says she just wants to know why did he do it and uh, because I mean, he's at a point where he's um, he's almost turning eighteen. He's going to be transferred to an adult prison, and she's uh, and so and and he seems kind of scared about this idea that you know he's off to to join the adults now. He's no longer going to be in in a, a, a quote safer space. You get the feeling he's scared too. Like you get yeah, the feeling he, that he's afraid of this. Like this is real. And what I think is so interesting is it's his response because he says. When she says, why'd you do it? He says, I used to think I knew, but I'm no longer sure. And that to me is that moment where, like, is he finally, is there something clicking in him finally? Like, he used to know, and and it, it related to all the stuff that was going on in his life, the anger, the hatred, just all of this stuff. But now it's like he's shifting a little bit, and it's it's like... That's what allows that hug to happen, I think. You know, he finally is in a place where he can accept that. And I, I found it to be a very, very powerful ending. 
Well, very powerful. It's a little bit confusing to me because, especially as you say that, because that's not what I got out of it. I I got that this was more of an exploration of his sociopathy. That he he used to think he knew. He's not sure anymore, and that's not because of some sort of of growth on his part, but more some sort of growth in his um, in in him just not being well that that he is so damaged so far damaged that he he has no idea anymore why he did that stuff and that he really is probably still very much a danger to others um and so i i guess i i came at it with a much less less hopeful uh resolution powerful but not hopeful at I, all. yeah i don't i don't know if i find it hopeful i i think what i'm saying is that it's just like in his mind, he probably had reasons at the time, but, and, and maybe it speaks really to what you're saying. It's just like, it's fuzzy. Like he, yeah. like the way that his brain works, it's just like, there's not any strong logic to these things. It's just kind of this dark place that he goes and wants to see what happens, really. Yeah. Right. And, right. Right. And the longer he's away from it, the less, um, the less logic it makes, but it doesn't mean that it wouldn't happen again. Yeah. Yeah. So it's 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 just incredibly frightening, but it does allow for that moment between him and his mom where he does kind of accept a hug. And this is the sort of thing that he never would have done. The only time was when he was sick, when he had that moment where they were really connected and uh, at least that we saw in the film. But, you know, I, I, I found that to be a really powerful ending when we see that. And, and you know, before she uh, before she leaves, it's just it it made for. um you know, I, I guess a, a difficult ending for a difficult film, but the ending that made sense to me. Me too. I, I I felt like this movie did not let me down at the end, and there that's yet another place it could have just fallen apart. Is right at the end, and and to me it just was a crushing blow to the chest uh, that was hard to watch and uh, resolute in um, in in the way it wrapped up her emotional journey. Right. I felt like walking away. I didn't need more story from her or from him. They were alone in the world now. And, and so that's it was that was it. Yeah. Yeah. Powerful, powerful film. Very tough. Very uh, expertly crafted. Just I mean, from beginning to end, I, I just I really um, found it to be quite a moving yeah. experience. Me too. Okay, Brian says, seemed like from what you're saying, the suggestion might be that some degree of worse outcomes could have been avoided if mom went more intervening and talked about Kevin to the cops and social workers. I think, I, I don't know, I think that might, that might be true. But I think the movie is making a, is making a, a worldview position that it would have been impossible to save him. Like she could try, but it would have been impossible. There were way too many things standing in the way of him um, of her being able to even do that. Uh, but eventually this is like the, the ending for Kevin was inevitable. If it wasn't in the school, if it wasn't in the family, it would have been somewhere someday that that's, I think what the position of the story is to me. So maybe he, he might not kill so many people now, but he, he's a danger to others. And that's, and that's, I think the other thing is like, she's constantly going to be asking herself, if I had said something to somebody, would that have stopped it? Yeah. You know, it's like, like where, and what, what do you say? And, and it's a challenge, especially because she's said stuff to dad and he just kind of totally blew her off. And so yeah. in that sort of relationship, when 
I guess it's some sort of gaslighting to a certain extent, but obviously it's just it's just d- disagreement. But he, you know, never saw anything, and so so that makes her question it, and so she's just you know too um, unsure of her opinion to say something to someone else because dad's just like, yeah, what are you talking about? Like you're the one who needs help. Like he says that to her. Yeah, yeah, right, right. All right. Well, we will be right back, but first, our credits. The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM. Engineering by Andy Nelson. Music by Estelle May, Oriel Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at v-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. All right, Andy, how to do it award season? It got a lot of nominations. Um, it didn't have as many wins, and I think it probably speaks to perhaps the uh, the strength of the year, but also the the subject matter, which is difficult for people. It did have 26 wins, though, 66 total nominations. Um, just looking at British awards at the BAFTAs, it was nominated for the Alexander Corda Award for Best British Film, but lost to Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy. Tilda Swinton was nominated for Leading Actress, but lost to Meryl Streep in The Iron Lady. And uh, and Ramsey herself was nominated for Best Director, but lost to Michelle Hazanavicious for The Artist. At the British Indie Film Awards, Ramsey did win for Director here. It was nominated for Best British Independent Film, but lost to Tyrannosaur, which is a movie I constantly keep meaning to watch. And somehow it's always slipped my, my watch list. But uh, have you seen Tyrannosaur? I have not. That's the one directed by, uh, what's his name? One of the Andes in Hot Fuzz. Um, oh, that's right. Uh, We've talked about it. Oh, yeah. Man. So anyway, uh, Tyrannosaur won be- uh, that. It was nominated for Best Screenplay, but lost to Submarine, another one which I haven't seen. Um, Best Actress, uh, Swinton lost to Olivia Coleman in Tyrannosaur. Ezra Miller was nominated for Supporting Actor, but lost to Michael Smiley in Kill List. And it was nominated for a Technical Achievement Award. Interestingly, the way Technical Achievement Awards work with this and the next awards I'll talk about, it's a broad spectrum of technical achievements. It was nominated for Cinematography, but it lost to Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy for Production Design. And at the London Critics Circle Film Awards, it won for Best British Film of the Year, Best Director lost to Michelle Hazanavicious for The Artist. Best Actress lost a, a tie for Anna Paquin and Margaret and Meryl Streep in The Iron Lady. Best British Actress lost to Olivia Coleman for Tyrannosaur and The Iron Lady. And another one, Best Technical Achievement, was nominated for Sound Design but lost to Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy for Production Design. Um, you didn't call out Submarine, but I have to call out Submarine. Well, I, I, it's another one I need to see, and I yeah, just keep missing so it. It's so good. I loved Submarine. Richard Ayoade. Ayoade. Oh, God. Yeah. I just, I think he has such a sublime sense of humor. And the movie is, it walks that line between just, you know, heartfelt high school sensitivity and uh, and funny moments. And it's just one of those, you know who would love it? That's Steve Sarmento. This is a Steve Sarmento movie. Are you saying I won't love it? I mean, you love a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I am a lover, You're not just, a fighter. So. Yeah, right. right. You're, <laughs> I love right, too okay. much. I love too much. You That's love too Pete. much. <laughs>
All right. How about at the box office? Did it do any good there? Well, so far, this film had the biggest budget of the films that we've discussed at this point. Uh, it had $7 million to spend or $7.98 million in today's dollars. The movie premiered at Cannes, and then it had a very long festival run, as well as opening in some countries before finally opening on one screen here in the States, December 9th, 2011, opposite New Year's Eve and The Sitter. This movie would expand to 80 screens over the 23 weeks it played in theaters, and it would go on to earn $1.7 million domestically and just over $9 million internationally for a total gross of $12.3 million in today's dollars. That lands the film with an adjusted profit per finished minute of $38,000. That's pretty good. You know, it did okay I mean, for it's itself. doing okay. Yeah, it made money. Kept, kept Ramsey working. She got to come <laughs> back, do more stuff. Yes, indeed, indeed. All right, Handy. We we've got we've got more movies coming up. We do. I know. Are you excited? I am. I'm I'm pretty excited, I think. Uh what's what we're we're going to come back and we'll do our ratings, but we we got to talk about uh what's coming up next week. Next week we're going to be talking about uh Nadine Labaki's Where do we go now? I'm glad we uh, I'm glad we knocked this one out. Really, really fun. I am, too. This was probably of all the films, like the one that I most knew about. Yeah. In this particular series. So I was very, very excited to uh, to kind of watch this one, even though I knew it dealt with difficult, uh, a difficult subject. I am incredibly uh, just thrilled with uh, what Ramsey did here. And so, um, yeah, I, I'm glad that we've added it to the list and look forward to watching more of Ramsey's films. 
Do you even need to do you even need to ask what I thought about this movie? What'd you do with Letterboxd? How'd you how'd you end up? Uh five stars. Five stars in a heart. Yeah. Straight up. This was just monumental filmmaking. Uh, I it was so impressed from the beginning. Because I mean, this is the sort of film that can be just a very heavy drama yeah. in the way that it's depicted. But the way that Ramsey constructed it, it was just alive and and just constantly shifting. And I just I, I was just I, I knew I was in the hands of somebody that I, I absolutely wanted to see more from. So five stars in a heart for me. Yeah, me too. Me too. You know, one thing we didn't talk about that just strikes me now is that there is a bit of a of a ideology around violence in schools, that this isn't a gun movie, that it's a bow and arrow movie. I, I don't know that that's ne- really worth getting into, but it is interesting that this movie does take that journey and still effectively is a, as a mass violence event uh, that isn't a mass gun event. That's I, I wonder what what the author is saying about that uh, in particular, but I still give it a interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. That is so. really an interesting uh, perspective here. That that idea of that. Well, we want to know what you thought about what we need to talk about, Kevin. You should hop into the show talk channel on our Discord server, and we'll be talking about this movie this week. Share your thoughts when the movie ends. Our conversation begins. Letterboxd giveth, Andy. As Letterboxd always doeth. <sighs> Letterboxd gave so much. So much. <laughs> yes. We could, we, could, we could have spent this entire time just reading Letterboxd reviews. There are Some, a lot. We really could. A lot of them are very short and quippy. It's fun. It's a fun place to hang out. Yeah, it's a really fun place to hang out. Like, if if we were really, you know really shilling for Letterboxd, we might talk about Sophie's review, basically a two-hour birth control commercial. That's not my pick, though. Um, <laughs> I mean, we might talk about a Fox four-and-a-half-star review saying we need to talk about Kevin's low-rise jeans. That's not my review. No, sir. I would never... Or Kyle Dunn's. Or Kyle Dunn's, which is not mine. That's four-and-a-half. If you thought being married to a man was bad, try giving birth to one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so there are some there there are some fantastic one-liners in this, and and if you just even if you haven't seen the movie, go just read the one-line reviews in Letterboxd because they're fantastic. But that none of those were my pick. What is your pick? What, what was? Ooh, oh, oh, you're making me go first now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it probably isn't Maria's three-star review. They should have talked about Kevin a tiny bit more. <laughs> <laughs> All right, not exactly. that for sure. It's it's definitely not that one. Okay, mine is a three and a half review by Pedro, who says, the two colors that appear most in this film are yellow and red. And right now I'm wearing a yellow shirt and red shorts. How likely is that to happen? (laughs) That makes me wonder what Pedro was on when he wrote that review. Yeah. That's that's like, whoa. Truly. Truly. I, I'll tell you what, re- what review isn't my pick. Jeff's three-star pick, excellent film to watch with your wife and 10-day-old son on a sunny Sunday afternoon. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Sorry, right. Jeff. No, mine is mine is a little bit more uh, substantive than that, which is really to the title and the plot in a way that really gets to the heart of it, and that's Brat's four-star review. Spoiler alert, they never talk about Kevin, <laughs> which, is, which is accurate. Yeah, rough, rough day, rough day. Thanks, Letterboxd. 
I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.